Peggy Lynn was from Ghana, and she was working in the Ghana Embassy in Washington, D.C., and it goes on to give a little details on her life. She drove a 1992 Honda Accord. She lived in an apartment. Uh, she was trying to make it in the big city, when all, they, all of a sudden, one day, her life completely changed. She uh, received notice from Ghana, from her hometown, that she had been made king of this village. Now, when she told them that she was a woman, so she should probably be called a queen. This is the best part of the article. They said, well, the position we had was king, so you're the king. Well, obviously, her life completely changed. She returned back to Ghana, and instead of driving a 92 Accord, she never had to drive herself again. She gets chauffeured everywhere she goes. She was given a personal chef. She was given a 1,000 acres of land, on which is a mansion with eight full bedrooms, Discovering her new identity changed quite a bit about Peggy Lynn's life, wouldn't you say? In a similar way, we are in a series as a church together looking at our new identity that we've been given in Jesus Christ. Like Peggy Lynn, I think too many Christians walk around in this world with really no idea of who we are and what we've been given. We drive 1992 Honda Accords sometimes when we have so much more waiting for us. Paul, who was the author of Ephesians, which is the letter that we're looking at for much of this year together as a church, understood this really well. That's why before Paul ever talks about in almost all of his letters about how we are to live the Christian life, which is where so many of us want to jump to, right? We come to faith in Christ and then we want to know all the things that we're supposed to do. But before Paul ever jumps into that, although he does talk about that and we're going to talk about that when we get there in chapter 4 of Ephesians, but before he does that, He reminds Christians of what they've been given in Christ. He reminds them of their new identity. And the reason for that is once we are convinced who we are in Christ, like Peggy Lynn, it will change everything about the way we live. In fact, we've been saying it this way uh, each week. If you're following on your notes there, being convinced of who we are in Christ changes the way we live. It changes the way we live. Each week in this series, we are looking at some of the lies that we believe about ourselves and our identity. If you saw the the clip there, the lie we're going to be looking at together this morning is the lie I think many of us have probably heard throughout our lives, the lie that I am unwanted and I am unlovable. I'm unloved. I know uh, for me, I've heard that lie before of you. I know there are many people, quite honestly, in this room this morning who believe that. Maybe you believe that because your whole life you've been told that by other people. Maybe you believe that because you simply don't feel like you could ever possibly measure up to God's standards for you. And I'm willing to bet that at one time or another, we've all struggled with this lie that how is it possible that God could love me, that I could be loved by anyone for that matter. Now, I've shared uh, my personal story several times, how I came to Christ and how in the beginning of my relationship with Christ, um, I understood my relationship with God as a performance-based thing. I've shared this with you uh, before, right? So God's love was always determined on how well I was doing for God. It makes sense, right? If I do well, I'm pretty much feeling like God loves me. If I'm not doing well, if I'm failing, if I'm falling back into sinful habits and patterns, then I questioned God's love for me. And that was not a a fun place for me to live. I got to tell you, though, I don't think I've ever shared what ultimately changed my perspective on that. And what changed it is sort of what we're going to be talking about this morning, the truth we're going to be looking at. 
It all started in my life when I began to do a study on prayer. And of course, when you do a study on prayer, the first place you go is to the Lord's Prayer, right? I mean, I was a good Christian kid. I wanted to do all the right things. I knew Christians prayed, so I'm going to learn how to pray. God might love me if I pray better. And so I went to the Lord's Prayer, and the disciples were asking Jesus, you know, you like teach, you pray differently than other people pray. Will you teach us to pray that way? And so I got to the Lord's Prayer, and it was familiar to me at this point. Uh, and I read the first line. We all know it. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Okay. Here we go. What does that mean? And I started digging into it, and uh, some of you know this already. The very second word of that prayer is the word Father. And that sounded pretty formal to me until I understood that the real word there in Aramaic was the word Abba. And the word Abba was much more of a personal term used for like a daddy. It was, it was the term used for daddy today in our common language. And I, that just stunned me. I, I was shocked that Jesus would refer to God as daddy, as, as Abba. And I started looking at it. Did you know in the Old Testament, uh, God is only referred to as Father 14 times in the entire 39 books of the Old Testament. And never once is it used between an individual and God. It's always in reference, kind of more like a metaphor between God's relationship with the nation of Israel. He's, He's Israel's Father. And yet here Jesus comes up on the scene and he starts talking about God being his Father, I don't think we appreciate today still how radical of an idea this really was, right? Jesus refers to God as Father. In fact, the only time Jesus refers to God in an impersonal way is when he quotes from Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, right? So, Jesus refers to God as Father. That made sense. He's God's Son. But when you really study the prayer, what's the first word of the prayer? Our Father. Our daddy. And that was like a major paradigm shift in my life. Not only does Jesus refer to God as Abba, he invites his disciples, those who have been placed in Christ, to think about God as Abba as well. What a paradigm shift. And I started digging deeper into this. I couldn't believe it. And I started looking into verses like the ones we're going to be looking at together this morning. And what I discovered honestly shocked me. I don't know how else to say it. It changed my view of my relationship with God. God wanted a relationship with me like a child and a dad. Not a performance-based thing, but a father and a child type thing. I had never thought of God this way. I know I could have called. I knew I could have called him father, but my picture of was that it was like the father was sitting on his throne of judgment, weighing out my good and my bad. Right? He's the father, ready to like go down on me if I do something bad, but ready to praise me if I do something good. That was my picture of God. But Christianity, by the way, the only religion in the world claims that our creator can also be our father. A lot of religions don't like that, actually, about us. Did you know that? They think it's blasphemous to reduce God down to some kind of personal level like that, right? We can see ourselves as God's servants, as his disciples even, but to call him daddy, that just doesn't seem right. And yet, if you're following on your notes, Christianity claims that our creator is also our father. And as we're going to see, I hope you're already beginning to see, the implications of that should fundamentally change the way you view your life if you are in Christ. 
the implications of just that amazing truth that he is our Abba should fundamentally change the way you view your life and the way you see your identity. It did for me, and my prayer is if some of you are struggling this morning with the idea that I am unlovable, the lie that I am unwanted, that God's truth will speak to you this morning. So let's turn to him in prayer. Let's offer him this time together because I can say a lot of words, but only he can speak to the heart. Our Abba, who art in heaven, we are gathered here to praise your name. We pray your kingdom come right now in this room, even as it is in heaven. I want to pray very specifically for a group of people in this room right now who didn't have the greatest experience with their earthly fathers. God, I pray that they might be able to remove that right now for a time. They can admit the hurt, but let that not paint a a picture of the perfect father that you are. Would you speak the kind of love that you've already been speaking into this room this morning? Thank you that you are a father, that you are our Abba, and we are your children. In Jesus' great name, amen. Well, why don't you take your Bibles and uh, turn them to Ephesians chapter 1. Hopefully, if you've been coming through this series, you're getting used to where to find Ephesians uh, in your Bibles. If you didn't bring one, we always encourage you to grab one of the Bibles in the seat in front of you there. And you can find Ephesians 1 on page 814. We've kind of mentioned this. I'm only going to cover two verses this entire morning in Ephesians. We're really going slow in the first part of Ephesians, but I thought it might be helpful to set the context again of these verses by starting in verse 3 this morning. I mentioned this the first week. I think Jeff mentioned it again last week. Starting in verse 3, Paul writes the longest recorded sentence in Greek history. Did you know that? It's like Paul can't contain himself. He just starts spewing out all the incredible blessings that we've been given in Christ. And we gave you a little hint. The blessings have to do with our identity. They have to do with who we have now been made in Christ. And so we're slowing down Ephesians 1, and we're looking at these blessings individually. We're going to look at verses 5 and 6, but like I said, let's start in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. As we said in the first week, Paul will now go on to describe those blessings. That's what we're doing. And they have to do with our identity, right? What are the blessings? All the heavenly blessings we've been given in Christ. The first one we saw last week, verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Jeff talked about this last week. If you missed it, I encourage you to listen uh, to the podcast. But the first blessing we've been given is that we were chosen. We were chosen by God. That's our identity as chosen ones, right? Chosen to be holy and blameless. Uh, If you missed it, catch it. But we come to the second one here, the second spiritual blessing, and that comes in verse 5. Let's read it out loud together on our notes there. It says, In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. I'll finish the the section here, verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. If you're following on your notes, the second spiritual blessing, which is what verse 3 says, that we've been given, is in Christ we have been adopted into God's family. We have been adopted into God's family. Now, before I talk about adoption, there's a little tricky word right before it. It's the word predestined. 
This word has caused a lot of confusion over the years. In fact, every small group that I've ever led, eventually we have a discussion about predestination. You just have to if you're in a small group, right? I just want to mention again, Jeff touched on this last week. He did a great job explaining a lot of what that means. So if you're still struggling with that, I, I encourage you to listen. But simply, in its most technical term, let me just define predestined for you. Predestined just means to decide beforehand. To decide something beforehand. We predestine things. We decide things beforehand. So it's just critical that we understand that's the idea here. It's primarily, almost always, referring to what God does for his people. He decides things beforehand for his people. And here, what do we see God decided beforehand to do? What did he predestine to do? To adopt us. To adopt us into his family. So listen, the the key point about all this is that this wasn't some mistake. Our adoption wasn't like God's plan B. Whoops, plan A went wrong. I guess I'll move on to plan B, adoption. No, God's plan, he determined it beforehand, has always been to create a family. To create a family for himself, to come into relationship with him. So if you're following on your notes there, before we were born, God decided beforehand to adopt us. Now, here's the other important thing. Again, if you still struggle with this, think of it in terms of a human adoption. We have a lot of parents here who have either adopted or are going through the process of adoption, right? And I guess I'll just ask you a very simple question. Whose decision is it ultimately in the beginning to adopt? Is it the child's or is it the parent's? It's the parents, right? Parents sit down together. They pray. They consider. Is this something God is asking us to do? So here's the key. The parents take the initiative in the adoption. It wasn't the children's decision. Now, do the children have a role? Absolutely. And in a similar way, understand Christianity says it was God's initiative. It all started way before we were ever born. God predetermined It was his initiative to create a family, to create a family for himself. Now, do we have a role in that? Again, Jeff talked about that. Yeah, we have a a will. We can receive that. We can go into his family. But understand, it was always started with God's initiative, okay? So that's predestined. I've answered it completely now for all time. You never have to discuss it again in your small groups, okay? Yeah, right. I wish. It's still a huge mystery, isn't it? Now, adoption. Let's talk about adoption. Interestingly, Paul is the only person in the New Testament who uses this term adoption. And there's no question Paul is taking it uh, from the Roman usage of the word. It was a Roman idea. It was a a legal thing that took place in Rome. In fact, Jewish uh, people didn't even think much about this idea of adoption. The word in Greek that Paul is using here means literally to make you a son. To adopt means to make you a son. It is different and the same uh, of how we think of adoption today. Different in the sense that today, when we think of adoption, we think of a parent, parents adopting children, right? Younger children. But in this day and age, almost always it had to do with an adult adopting a, a younger man. Uh, an adult-aged man, right? And what would normally happen is that this Roman guy would have this huge estate, but he'd have nobody he could pass it on to, and so he would look in the community, he'd find a, a young man who he respected and admired, and he'd go up to him and he'd ask him, I would like to adopt you as my son. And if this guy agreed, they would make a legal transaction, and he would then become this guy's son. And a number of things happened at this moment. Immediately several things happened. The first was this young man lost all of his debts. 
All of his obligations were gone. His old person, in a way, was, was no longer existing. So he had no more obligations, no more debts. If he did, uh, his father would have taken them upon himself. Secondly, the son immediately becomes as wealthy as his father. He became the heir, right? The heir of all that his father owned. And then lastly, he would get a new name. He'd get a new name. He'd get his new father's name. He had the responsibility then of carrying on that name and honoring that name. Let let that sink in a little bit here because we're going to come back to how that is paralleled to our adoption, right? Think of those three things. Now, I want to make one mention here. The, The legal term meant, I told you, to make a son, right? And so for you women in the room, I'm wondering if you're thinking, well, what about daughters? What about girls? Now, now the truth is, there was no such thing as adopting girls during this time. It was a male-dominated culture, right? No, no, No daughter could be adopted to become the heir of the estates. But I want you to see what Paul does here. Does he just limit adoption to men? No, he gives the status. I want you to think of it more as a status. He gives the status of son to all Christians, male, female, Jew, Gentile. This is actually a pretty revolutionary idea that Paul is saying here. He's saying that women have the same status in Christ as men do. And if you still have a problem with it, think of it this way. Men, we're called the bride of Christ. What is that talking about? It's talking about our status, right, under Jesus' authority. Uh, So in the same way, I hope you just understand, Paul is actually being revolutionary here, not sexist. He's saying all people, whether you're a male, female, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, you can all be given the status of son. You're all given the status of son. Now, the question is, how exactly are we given this status? Well, just like in the Roman law, you know the story of salvation, right? A legal transaction had to take place. A legal transaction had to take place. The reason it was made possible is because... God made a great payment on our behalf. Do you have any friends right now who are going through the process of adoption, or maybe you yourself are? You know that adoption costs a lot of money and time and effort, don't you? It's a huge undertaking. I wish it wasn't, uh, you know, so hard. But it's hard, it's hard, it's expensive. Well, just like that, our adoption into God's family was extremely expensive. It took a huge payment, and the payment, if you know the gospel, the payment was the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross. That was the payment so that we could be adopted into God's family. I heard a great illustration uh, that's given me a lot to think about. If you ever go to a a place where there's a lot of sheep, if you go to Scotland or Ireland or something, you're going to notice something strange about some of the small sheep. Some of the sheep look like they're actually wearing two fleeces, and the reason is is because they are. What happens is a shepherd will cut a a fleece off of another lamb and put it over one of these baby lambs. They'll literally cut holes in for legs and for a a head. And the reason is because that baby's lamb mom died. And this baby lamb has no mother that it can, you know, sustain life to. And so what this shepherd does is it takes the, the fleece of another baby lamb, covers it with that mom's lamb. Is this making sense? And so when this lamb goes to the new mom, the mom recognizes it as her own lamb, and she receives him. She takes care of him. It's the same way with the gospel, right? We have been covered. We have been covered with the blood, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And because we've been covered by his righteousness, we are received as one of God's own. 
We are adopted into his family. We don't just like get looked at and say forgiven. We're received. We're welcomed into the family. Think about it this way. I know a lot of you have heard the illustration. I think I've used it. Salvation is like a judge, right? God is a judge. Salvation is like a judge declaring us guilty. We're all guilty. We know that. We've sinned. We've come to a a recognition of that. So the judge declares us guilty. But then you've heard this illustration, right? The judge comes from around the podium and actually pays the penalty for us. That's salvation, right? That's our justification. We are declared not guilty. The judge has paid the fine for us. But that illustration doesn't even go far enough. According to Ephesians 1.5, the judge doesn't just pay the penalty. The judge now takes us home and invites us into a family. He gives us a whole new identity, a whole new relationship. Now, the next question is, why? Why in the world did God do this? We've been singing about it. We've been thinking about it a lot already uh, this morning. I hope you didn't miss it. It comes down to the very simple but profound idea that God is love. That's it. It's because God loves you. It's because God loves me. Because God's primary motivation is love. Man, we have reduced love in our society to today, haven't we? It just doesn't mean what it's meant to mean anymore. We've like sexualized it or we've trivialized it. To some days I love them. Some days like a feeling that comes and goes. Love is the most powerful word in the world. Scripture says God is love, and it's because God is love that he determined beforehand to create a family for himself where he was father, where he was father. In fact, uh, most people believe, as I I believe there, that's why I put it in your notes there, the end of verse 4 is really the beginning of verse 5. And so it should read, in love, God adopted us into his family. It is because God so loved the world that he sent his only son to be the payment, to clothe us with righteousness. I love how the New Living Translation printed or uh, translated the second part of verse 5. I liked it so much, I put it on your notes there. Let's read why God adopted us. It says, this is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. Do you believe that? Do you believe that's God's heart for you? That's what he wanted to do. And it gave him great pleasure to adopt you as his child into his family. God wasn't doing this reluctantly. Oh, fine. I guess you can come. He wanted to do it. It gave him pleasure to do it. Do you believe that or do you believe the lie? That you are unwanted and unlovable. Do you believe when Jesus says, think about this, Father, you have loved them even as you love me. That God loves us as much as he loves his only begotten son, Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you believe when you read the word adoption in the New Testament, it means that God has brought you in as one of his own biological children, and he loves you just as much as he loves his own son? Dr. J.I. Packer once said it this way, and I put this on the screen for you to follow along. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. 
for everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. But we don't believe that. We can't imagine God loving us that way. As I told you, I, this was my story. Even as I started studying it, I had a hard time believing I still honestly have a hard time believing that's how God feels for me. And if I could boil it down, the reason for that, the reason for that, and I think many of you struggle with this as well, is because if you're falling on your notes, I believe many Christians believe they are slaves, not sons. Now, we'd never say that. I would have never said that in high school, that I'm a slave of God. But isn't that what I was? When I based my relationship as God and my performance, isn't that what that is? A servant of God? I'm God's servant? I didn't see him as an, Ab- as an Abba. How many of you are into the show Downton Abbey? Or as some people call it, Downtown Abbey, right? None of you. Anybody watch the show Downton Abbey? You're lying. I know you're lying. Fine, if you don't know anything about the show, Downton Abbey is about this giant house, basically, in like the early 1900s. And there's this family that lives in this house, but also living in this house. Downstairs in the basement are all the servants. And the entire show, quite honestly, is about the relationship between those who live upstairs and those who live downstairs in the house, right? If you've watched the show, that's essentially what it's about. It's how they, those live in the downstairs and how the other people live in the upstairs. Both of them, interestingly enough, take orders from the father of the house. But fundamentally, if you watch a show, there's a difference between those who live upstairs and those who live downstairs. You see, ultimately, those who live downstairs know that if they don't obey the Father, they can be expelled from the home. And so they live in this perpetual sense of fear. You can see it if you've watched the show. They're always living in fear that they could be expelled. They could lose their position, their job. But the children of the house have a totally different attitude, right? They live with this sense of freedom. They live with the sense of this is my father's house. Even when I mess up, it won't stop me from being my father's child. Do you see the difference? Two people living in the same house with radically different reasons for why they live there. Radically different reasons for why they obey the father. Do you see that? Let's apply that to our Christian lives because honestly, uh, this is the burden of this whole message for me. Because I just think this is where the lie creeps into so many of our lives. If you're following, a slave, and by that I mean someone who views their identity to God in that way, obeys the Father out of fear and duty. If you identify yourself, you won't say it, but if you feel like you're a slave, then that means you're full of fears. And you obey God out of a sense of duty, out of a sense of works righteousness. Isn't that where that always leads? If I view myself as living downstairs, it's always going to lead to a works righteousness type of faith, where if I do this, God does this. As long as I stay in line, God's happy with me. I won't be expelled from the house. I won't lose my position as a servant of God. This is essentially Jesus' point in the most famous parable, in my opinion, he tells in Luke 15. We know it as the parable of the prodigal son, right? But that parable is really more than about the prodigal son. It's about two sons. 
We know that the first son, the first son tells the story of a, a young man who tells his dad he wants nothing to do with him anymore. Give me my inheritance. I want to go live a wild, crazy life. And that's exactly what he does until he finds himself one day in a pigsty and decides, isn't this interesting? He decides it would be better for me to what? Be a servant in my father's house than it would be to continue to live in this pigsty. That's all he thinks he can get servanthood in his father's house. He's going to be living in the basement, but even that, that would be better than, you know, living in this pigsty. So he repents, he goes back home, but instead of the father welcoming him back as a servant, how does he welcome him? With arms open wide, son, you've returned, party, celebration, but that's not where the parable ends, right? The real point of the parable is what happens next with the older brother. You see, the older brother didn't like the idea that this younger brother got welcomed back with such open arms by the father, so he's out pouting in the fields. He's stewing, like, come, what is this? And the father comes out to talk to him about this. And in one of the most revealing uh, lines of Scripture, would you read Luke 15, 29 on your notes there, it says? But he answered his father, look, All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. How does this son view his relationship with his father? Slave. I've been slaving for you. It's a works-based relationship, right? I'm doing my part. What's the deal? You don't even give me a young goat. Isn't this how this whole thing works? He completely missed it. He completely missed that all these years, his father has been welcoming him to the main floor, to live in the main floor, but he just remains as a servant. It's how he views his relationship with God. A slave mentality of the Christian life says, when I've done well, when I've performed well, when I live up to standards, then I can feel great about myself. But when I fail, when I falter, when I sin, I'm in danger of being expelled from my father's house. And so we live in a sense of fear and compulsion, up and down, up and down relationship with God. Can any of you relate to this besides me? Depending on how I do is how I measure God's love for me. You just keep waiting for the young goat, right? I even get a young goat. Here's I'm doing all this stuff for you, God. A son, however, relates to the father in a totally different way, a true son. A son relates with freedom, right? Children should be able to relate to their parents with this sense of freedom, this sense that this is my father's house. I belong here no matter whether I'm having the greatest week ever. I mean, let's just say you don't sin once this entire week. As a son, that doesn't do anything to you. It doesn't puff you up at all because, you know, I'm not, I'm not in the house because of my performance. Let's say you have the worst week ever. As a son, you can still say, that's okay. I'm still welcome in my father's house because our relationship is not based on my performance. There's not the up and down. There's not the fear. You live with a sense of confidence. If you're following, the reason is a son knows their acceptance isn't based on performance. Paul writes it this way in Romans chapter 8. And by the way, if this is a lie you struggle with, if you continue to worry about your relationship with God, how he can love you, you might want to camp out in Romans 8 for like a year or so. For those who are led by the Spirit of God, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. 
The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Did you see that? You don't have to be a slave anymore. You don't have to live in the basement. He's welcoming you to the main floor, not the basement. Now, are there going to be times when the enemy will tempt us to believe the lie that we belong in the basement? As one who has struggled with this lie his whole life, yes, all the time. I hear the lie all the time. How could you do that if you were really God's son? God couldn't possibly love you after you blew it for the one trillionth time in that area. And whenever I hear that lie coming my way, what we're learning here together as a church is instead we replace it with God's truth, right? And the truth God has said about me, if I am in Christ, is that I am a beloved child of the Most High God, now and forevermore, that will never change. I live on the main floor, baby. I ain't going back to the basement. And despite what the elder brother says, we've been given way more than a young goat, haven't we? As we close, I want us to consider some of the privileges we've been given by being God's adopted children. Remember when I talked about the legal, what happened legally for the Roman citizen when they were adopted? Well, now we're going to kind of see what, what kind of privileges we're given the moment we're adopted. The first privilege of adoption is that we have been given a new name. What are the names you've been carrying around that you've believed about yourself? The names the kid told you on the playground 30 years ago and you still carry it. The lies that Satan whispers to you about who you are. What are the names? You've been given a new name. You've been adopted into the family of God. You carry his name around with you now and forevermore. All those old things, they're gone. They're dead. We sang about it, right? I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old is gone. The new has come. Don't let those new old names come back. You've been given a new name in Jesus Christ. Beloved child of the Father. You actually have a legal right to it. Just like a Roman citizen did. You have the right to the name of your father. Second privilege we have in adoption is we're given intimate access to our father. I've been hinting at this, but again, don't miss the point that the word father is the Aramaic word Abba, which means daddy. What does that imply? It implies we have this unbelievable access to God in a personal, intimate way, right? Our daddy. Some of us think of God like he's the president of the United States, right? And we're servants in the White House. And so if a servant went to the president of the United States at 3 a.m. in the morning, knocked on his door, is like, hey, sir, I'd like to talk to you about a few things I've been noticing around here and uh, some of the issues that are going on in my personal life, you'd be like, what? You're fired. What are you doing waking me up at 3 a.m.? But if it's the president's son or daughter waking him up at 3 a.m. saying, dad, we need to talk. Do you think the president of the United States makes time then? How do you think of yourself? Do you think of yourself as having that kind of access to your Abba? Because he's made it available to you. We talked about it in Hebrews, right? You can approach the throne of God with gladness, with joy, with confidence, with boldness. Not because of 
you had a good week, but because you're his son, because he's adopted you into his family. Third privilege we're given in adoption is we're given a guaranteed inheritance. It's guaranteed. Paul says it this way in Galatians 4, 7. Can you read it on your notes out loud with me? It says, So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. We have become full heirs. Everything that God has is ours. Now there's a mean, two meanings behind that. There's a meaning for the here and now, and there's a meaning for the future. Let's talk about the here and now. Why are we spending so much time in these first few verses of Ephesians chapter 1 and 2? Because we're looking at the quote, verse 3, look at it again. Every spiritual blessing we have in Christ. That's our inheritance. We've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. We talked about that the first week. It's all the blessings of the Holy Spirit. We've been given the blessing of Christ in us, the hope of glory. And we're taking time to understand that as our inheritance. We're learning to walk in that inheritance, in that new identity in Christ. We've been given the new name. We've been given all these things, an amazing inheritance. And yet, there's also this idea in Scripture that there's a future inheritance waiting for us as well. Romans 8.23 puts it this way. Not only so, remember Romans 8, by the way? Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the full adoption, right? When we really fully come into ourselves, the redemption of our bodies. Listen, if you live the Christian life, why do we still struggle? Why do we still sin? It's because of our bodies, right? We live in the flesh. We walk in the flesh. So it's this ongoing process of learning to walk in our inheritance in the spirit. But at times, I go back to walking in the flesh. But that says there's a day coming when we will no longer have that hindrance. Amen? It's a great day when we will be in the family likeness. We will have the honor, integrity, joy, passion, grace, love of our brother, Jesus. The true elder brother who welcomed us in. To his father's arms. Last privilege adoption brings. This may sound like the opposite of a privilege, but in adoption, we're disciplined for a higher purpose. Listen, in any healthy family, there's going to be discipline, right? If there's no discipline, the children won't mature. They won't grow. Now, that discipline has to come out of a sense of love. And the truth is, all of us as parents have not always gotten this right. Sometimes we don't just discipline out of love. But the the bottom line is, if we aren't disciplined in life, we'll turn out reckless and entitled. So discipline is really comes from a place of love, right? Because we want the best for our children. Well, the author of Hebrews understood this. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10, it says, They, speaking of earthly parents, disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. Did they do it perfectly? Did your parents discipline you perfectly? Nope. My kids are in this room right now in this service. They could tell you I'm not perfect at this. But God disciplines us for our good. He does do it perfectly in order that we may share in his holiness. Discipline. Well, what are are we talking about here? Maybe you want to substitute a different word for it. How about the word suffering? Can God use suffering in our lives for a higher purpose? What's the higher purpose that we may share in his holiness? If my belief about God is that his primary motivation in my life is love, how will I view discipline and suffering? If I'm a servant... 
I'm not going to be able to get past the why questions. Like, why are you doing this? What have I done wrong? What did I do to deserve? That's how I view it if I'm a servant. But if I'm a son, I may not like it. I may not want it. I may want it to end, right? Who likes suffering? Nobody. But if I view myself as a son, I can know that I am in the hands of a loving Abba who only wants his best for me. And his best is to conform me more and more into his holiness, into the family likeness. He wants me to become the son he has already called me to be. Again, Romans 8, I've been meditating on this quite a bit. Some of you know this famous verse, Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Just keep it there for a second. Some of us have been told that verse in the midst of suffering, and it's not that helpful, is it? Because the reason people tell you that is that means, does that mean that everything in the life of a Christian is good? That's what people think it means. It's not what it means. There's going to be not good things. What it does mean is that God will take no matter what is going on in our lives, whether bad or good, suffering, discipline, whatever it is, and he will work it for the good. In fact, you always have to add verse 29 to understand verse 28. For those God foreknew, he also predestined, there it is, to do what? What did God decide beforehand to do in this case? To conform us to the image of his son, that we might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. What's God's higher purpose for us as his children? To conform us to the image of his son. If you know your identity as a son, you can handle discipline. You can handle suffering because you trust. You trust that God is love. God is love. Now, as we close, I'll just ask you this again. Are you a slave or are you a son? What's your identity? Do you believe that you are unwanted and unloved, or do you know the truth that before time even began, the Father's purpose for you, if you are in Christ, was to adopt you for no other reason than he loves you? As we read, he wanted to, and it gave him great pleasure. What would it look like today for you to start living with that as your primary identity? I've been given a new name, a new standing. I've been given access to my Abba. I've been given an inheritance that is far beyond the wealth this world could ever offer. What would it look like for you to start walking in it? Or as we close, here's the question I'll leave you with. Do I believe the truth that I am wanted and loved as a child of God. That that is who I am in Christ. Let's take a moment. Just be still before the Lord. I want you to take a moment and try to move all of this knowledge from your head. And I'm going to give you some silence to try to move it into your heart. What would it look like to honestly, this week, live as a child of God, a child of your Abba. What would be different? What would be the same?
Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us. That we may be called children of God. Abba, what a gift. Teach us this week to walk in this new identity. Identity as sons, as children. When the lie comes that we are unloved and unwanted, teach us to replace it with your truth. That you wanted to do this and it gave you great pleasure because you are love. Let us live as sons, not slaves. Let us live on the main floor, not the basement. Teach us to walk in your love this week. In Jesus' name.